0: Hello, and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I am your host, and this is episode 47 of Doc Tell Me More, almost a half a hundred. That's pretty incredible. And as always, whether it's the first time you've listened to my podcast or the the 47th time, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. I certainly appreciate this. And again, if you're new to Doc Tell Me More, uh, what I do in this podcast is I am a big fan of documentaries and I watch a documentary and then I spend some time on my podcast here looking at that podcast from a more in-depth look, look at, um, maybe things that are left out of of the documentary about the topic that are interesting or talk about the topics that were discussed at a little bit larger depth. And, um, a lot of these podcasts are about sports or history, which are my two major interests, and um, and and yeah, just something uh, something I like to do here um, to uh, just dive in a little bit more into my interests. And I hope overall you can learn something too from our time here at Doc. Tell me more. Right now, we are in the middle of a series on Doc. Tell me more on the Roosevelts, which is the Ken Burns documentary that takes a look at Teddy Roosevelt, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and then Eleanor Roosevelt and the impact they had really from almost half a century or actually a little bit more than half a century from essentially the late 1890s all the way up to the mid-20th century and how large of a role those three um, Roosevelt's played in the shaping of American history. So last week, we looked at episode one, which was mostly about um, Teddy Roosevelt, his his birth, his early career up until um, he became president. And, the, and that first episode ends with William McKinley becoming assassinated, or becoming assassinated, <laughs> being assassinated, and Teddy Roosevelt becomes president of the United States. So we looked at a few things there last episode from the... The Roosevelt's ancestry, to um, Roosevelt's service in the Spanish-American War, and then the actual assassination of William McKinley. Episode 2 of this documentary really continues to keep the focus mostly on Teddy Roosevelt, which makes sense, and really focuses on his presidency, which is from 1901 to 1909. Talks a little bit about Eleanor Roosevelt, talks a little bit about FDR as he starts his life, in his political career. But most of this episode is about Teddy Roosevelt, and so I'm going to pretty much keep my focus on that as well. Um, and as I said last episode, there's just so, so much I could talk about in these episodes of the Roosevelt, because you're talking about two presidents, two of what historians consider some of the greatest presidents in the history of the U.S., and then Eleanor Roosevelt, who Um, has a huge legacy of her own right so it's impossible for me to talk about every single topic and so what I'm going to do here in each of these episodes of the Roosevelt is I'm picking three events that are three topics that um, I want to dive in deeper and really look at those and so if we don't get into a topic that you'd hope to talk about I apologize Um, certainly encourage you to dive in deep yourself. Um, and the three topics that we are going to look at in this episode is the Panama Canal, the Brownsville Affair, and then the Russo-Japanese War, uh, which is a very interesting war. And you might be like, what does that have to do with the Roosevelt well? We'll talk about that when we get there. And one last thing before we dive in. Is um, just a reminder you, you can follow me uh, at Mastodon at, at Doc Tell me More at mastodon.world. Give me a follow, I'll follow you back. I'll post stuff about the documentaries, but I also just post random facts about sports and history as well. So, anyways, enough of that introduction. Let's get into episode 47 of Doc Tell Me More, which is the Roosevelt Part 2. So like I said, the first topic we're going to talk about here is the Panama Canal, which was a major uh, achievement in human history, and also certainly um, in the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt, but certainly not without controversy in its own right. Uh, The Panama Canal is considered one of the greatest technological achievements in human history, Um, and the idea of a canal across Panama, and if you're not familiar with Geography that is in Central America, right at the the narrow point there um, in Central America before it um, before you hit South America, where you have obviously the essentially the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans on either side. Uh, but the idea of the Panama Canal or of a canal across Panama actually stretches all the way back to the 1500s, as people recognize uh, the significance of a potential water route through that um, isthmus. If, if I knew I was going <laughs> to struggle with saying this word, isthmus, um, I think I've struggled with saying that since elementary school, but you guys know what I mean, um, across um, there in Panama, instead of having to go all the way around South America. And so if you think about it back then, let's say you had something in, you know, New York, and you needed to ship it to, let's just say, Los Angeles. Especially in the time before um, cross-country trains, you'd have to put it on a ship and go down um, you know, the North American coast, through the Caribbean, uh, uh, all the way down around South America, and then all the way back up then the other way, in that case, to California. And that could take months. And obviously, if you could build a canal across Panama, That would cut travel time for supplies dramatically. So people had dreamed about that for hundreds of years, actually. Now, Panama was part of Colombia. It was not its own independent country at this time here that we're talking about when Teddy Roosevelt was president. Um, It was actually one of three options for the canal route. Um, There was a route in Nicaragua. And also Mexico, um, so Panama wasn't the only option, of course, if you look at a map that Panama isthmus was the is the shortest land um, route there, which is why people were considering Panama as the likeliest potential spot for a canal. Now, the Suez Canal was built um, in the late eighteen hundreds, and the the French thought that after the success of the Suez Canal, that they could build a canal across Panama. And in 1878, they received a 15-year grant of rights from Colombia to build a canal. So they got permission from Colombia to build the canal. And as part of that grant of rights, after 99 years, the canal would revert back to Colombian control. Now, Ferdinand de Lesseps, who built the Suez Canal, was in charge of building the Panama Canal, and this actually proved to be a lot more difficult than the Suez Canal, just because of the topography in Panama. They also had to divert um, a river as well. And so, um, this was going to be a lot larger project than the Suez Canal, and I don't and the know De Lesseps I didn't really realize, nor did the French realize how complicated this was going to be. Another issue that um, was going to be maybe one of the last hurdles to complete this canal was the tropical diseases that were present, like yellow fever. Now, De Lesseps uh, ha- made a plan to construct a canal across Panama, but it didn't really have wide approval. Only one person who was part of the Congress that approved the plan actually visited Central America, and originally he projected that his canal would cost two hundred and fourteen million dollars and take eight years. Just kind of very arrogant when they were building their their plan, they felt like they knew what they had to do to build a canal and didn't probably put the research required um, into the undertaking it would take to build this Panama Canal. So, they, so the French again, this is not Roosevelt yet. The French started construction in January of eighteen eighty one, but by eighteen eighty five the plan had stalled now the original plan that the lesseps had was that he didn't uh, he wanted to build a canal without any locks and people it was, it was quickly determined that that was a misstep and that they were going to have to redesign things um, anyways the the project went bankrupt in 1889 After having completed about 40% of it and having spent almost $240 million already. And worse than that, about 22,000 people had died in those eight years. So they lost money. uh, They were nowhere close to complete and people were dying. And so his project went bankrupt. Now there was a new company called the New Panama Canal Company. You know, um, nice little clever name there. A Creative name, not really. Um, anyways, the new Panama Canal Company was created to finish the project, but it never really got off the ground. And the U.S. at that time decided to recommend building a canal through Nicaragua. Um, why? I think on one hand, there's probably people that thought that it was the better option, but you kind of also wonder if there's just some U.S. arrogance there of, well, you guys are building a canal through Panama. Well, we can build a canal through Nicaragua. However, Teddy Roosevelt... Pushed the U.S. to just take over the French project and their claim, since they'd already put some time and design into it. And Roosevelt kind of figured it'd just be a lot easier to just take over um, a canal project. So the U.S. ended up paying 40 million dollars to this uh, to the French to essentially take their claim. So the French had a claim from the Colombian government. The U.S. bought that claim to then build their own canal. Now, the U.S. still had to negotiate with Colombia for the approval to build a canal. And U.S. and uh, Colombia signed a treaty between the two countries, which would give the U.S. a 100-year lease on the canal for about 10 million, for $10 million, plus an annual payment of a quarter of a million dollars, being paid in gold. Wish I could be paid in gold. Now, Colombia, though, rejected the treaty, And part of this was because uh, the person that negotiated the treaty for the U.S. really wasn't given a whole lot of oversight by the Colombian government. And Colombia felt that the money they were offered was actually less than what the U.S. I mean, not they felt the money that Colombia got was less than what the U.S. paid France for the right. So they felt they should have gotten more money for this canal. And they're probably right. So you're probably thinking, okay, so then the U.S. just paid more money. No, and this is where it just gets kind of crazy. So Teddy Roosevelt was certainly upset that Colombia turned him down, and so instead of just renegotiating, Roosevelt decided to back a, um, a Panamanian revolution where they would overthrow Colombia and start their and break away and start their own independent Panama country. Which is, what he, which is what happened. He, so he kind of subtly signaled to the Panamanian rebels that they would support their revolution against Colombia. Essentially, if they allowed them to build a canal. And that's what happened on November 3rd, 1903. This is about two years into Teddy Roosevelt's office. Uh, Panama rebelled against Colombia and the U.S. supported it by sending warships to essentially support Panama. And then on November 6, three days later, the U.S. recognized um, Panama's independence uh, from Colombia as its own country. So Panama exists today as a country because the U.S. backed the revolution there, not out of the independent spirit of 1776, but because the U.S. wanted to build a canal through Panama and Colombia wouldn't let them. So, after the U.S. and uh, after Panama won the war, their independence from Colombia, the U.S. and Panama signed their own treaty, which gave the U.S. rights to the canal, as well as five miles on each side in perpetuity. Panama received essentially the same deal $10 million from the U.S. and an annual rental payment of a quarter million dollars. And that was approved so the U.S. could build their canal. Uh, the treaty almost immediately caused conflict between the U.S. and Panama. A big reason was because the Panamanian ambassador to the U.S. was someone who's also involved in the French Canal Project. And really, he had received his post as ambassador due to financial support for the rebellion. But he had, hadn't actually been in Panama for 17 years. So he was really seen as someone who was just catering to the U.S., not someone who's really representing um, you know, Panama's interest in this. Uh, No one from Panama actually signed the treaty, even though Panama did eventually ratify it. So this gets ratified. The U.S. can build their canal. But there are a lot of hurt feelings from this, from Panama's point of view on this. So construction continues. Um, In 1906, Teddy Roosevelt actually visits the canal zone. So that's what it's called. Now, the canal with five miles on each side is Not considered part of Panama, it's considered the Panama Canal Zone, but the U.S. controls it. Um, Anyways, Teddy Roosevelt visited the canal zone, and he became the first sitting president to leave the country. At the construction's peak of the canal, 3 million cubic yards of earth was excavated a month. Two artificial lakes were created using four dams, and it was eventually completed in 1914 and the first official transit was made on August 15th and the construction of the the canal saved almost 8,000 miles um, for a trip so you don't have to go around South America and this proved really essential later in in World War II so just a huge technological achievement for mankind just to just to do that pretty impressive it cost about 375 million dollars 75,000 people worked on the project. About 5,600 people actually did die working on the project. All 239 million cubic yards removed, which is something I can't even fathom. Um, And the canal is 51 miles long. It takes about 11 hours for ships to go through. And approximately 14,000 ships go through the Panama Canal each year. And later on, the U.S. actually bought the Virgin Islands partly to protect the canal. So we still own the U.S. Virgin Islands to this day. And the reason why we own that is because we wanted to keep the canal safe. And we talked about the seven wonders of the world. There's also the seven modern wonders of the world. And the canal is considered one of those. So a big technological achievement and, and considered one of the... Again, biggest achievements of Teddy Roosevelt's presidential career. I mean, you got that little asterisk on it because he had to start a revolution to get that. Um, but just if you look at it just from a construction standpoint, it's pretty impressive that they were able to build a canal. Now, a couple of things I want to talk about that um, I found interesting in researching with the Panama Canal. As I said, there is the Panama Canal Zone, which is the U.S. controlled. Um, the capital of this canal zone was the town of Balboa, Not, I don't think it was founded by Rocky, um, but it was founded by the U.S. during construction and named for a Spanish conquistador who is quote-unquote credited with discovering the Pacific, as in one of the first Europeans that saw it. Now, the, the, the Canal Zone, like I said, is part of the U.S. It was under the supervision of the Secretary of War and then the Canal Zone government, um, which oversaw this. Un, it was an unincorporated territory. Now, the zone did have its own police, own courts, own judges. Everybody, Everyone there worked for the government. They did not own their homes. Interestingly, while it was a U.S. territory, Panamanians could travel freely through it because the Canal Zone essentially cut Panama into, into two parts. You had the, the part north of it and the part south of it. So Panamanians need to get to either side for various reasons. They could actually freely travel to get to the other side. There were not formal boundary restrictions. You know, you think about like the border between the U.S. and Canada, U.S. and Mexico, That that didn't really exist. Now workers, this is kind of sad, but workers were split into what was called gold roll and silver roll classifications, which meant you were paid in gold or silver. Gold classifications were typically white Americans and Northern Europeans, while silver classifications were black Americans and other Europeans. And the Canal Zone was segregated like the South, the Jim Crow South. So it it was not a So not necessarily a great place to be if you were not white. Um, You were not on the same level as other as white citizens if you were black. The Canal Zone Commission area was established and they ended up making 22 stores and 22 hotels. Um, This actually caused friction between the U.S. and Panama because then people were buying stuff from those Canal Zones as opposed to Panama. Interestingly, there were questions about citizenship to those born in the zone. So, if you were a child of a worker, were you, in a, and then you were born on the canal zone, were you an American citizen? And technically, the canal zone, even though the U.S. owned it as an unincorporated territory, they controlled it. It was considered foreign territory. Originally, children born were considered U.S. citizens if their fathers were, and they had previously resided in the U.S. This eventually changed um, so that if a child was born in the Canal Zone, they were given full U.S. citizenship if uh, one parent was a U.S. resident. And they actually retroactively went back and gave everybody born in the Canal Zone that citizenship. One famous example was John McCain. So, Senator John McCain, the famous Vietnam War veteran and two-time Republican nominee for president in 2000 and 2008. He just passed away a few years ago. He was actually born in the Canal Zone in 1936. And when he ran for president, this kind of became a minor issue with some people of, oh, is he actually a U.S. citizen? Because if he's not a U.S. citizen, he can't run for president. The Senate ended up passing a non-binding resolution stating he was a citizen, and it really didn't have any effect. I actually don't really remember it during his elections in 2000 and 2008. I don't remember that at all being an issue. Um, But anyways, it was a moot point because um, he wasn't elected. As I mentioned earlier, there was a source of tension between the U.S. and Panama um, because of the treaty to build a canal, and this erupted into riots in 1964. And what happened was Panama students entered the canal zone to fly a Panamanian flag next to an American flag, which is actually an agreement the two countries made. And the students that did that were harassed by Americans in the canal zones. And this angered Panamanians who were watching this on TV, and this triggered some riots. There are 20 Panamanians were killed, 500 were injured, and most were killed or injured from American troops who were called in to protect private property. And January 9th to this day is still called Mart- Martyrs Day. It's a big deal in Panama. They actually broke off diplomatic relations on January 10th and refused to restart negotiations until they renegotiated the original treaty in April. Relations restarted after there was an agreement to discuss ways to eliminate the issues between the two countries. So, Panama essentially wanted to have more sovereignty over the canal. And you can point back and say, well, they signed that treaty and gave the U.S. the rights, which is true. But as I said, that treaty was negotiated a little dubiously. Panama wanted the canal zone back. And so, eventually, there were negotiations and in 1977. President Carter helped broker some treaties. Um, There are two treaties that ended up superseding the original treaty. And one treaty had the U.S. retain the permanent right to defend the canal from a threat, um, essentially because the canal is a service to humankind, not just Panama. So the U.S. still had interest in it and felt that they should be able to protect it. But the second one decreed that the U.S. would transition the canal zone over to Panama uh, th- In 1999, so 22 years later, uh, this was opposed by conservatives like Ronald Reagan, Strom Thurmond, and Jesse Helms. And there's actually some attempts to in the U.S. to get the treaties declared void, but that did not happen. And Panama, the canal, excuse me, was eventually transferred to Panamanian control on December 31st, 1999. I actually remember that when that happened. I didn't know... I think at the time, so I was at that time, I was in high school at the time, and I remember that happening, and I think part of me was like, I don't think I really understood, A, the U.S. controlled that, and B, that we were going to give it up. But anyways, to this day now, Panama controls the canal, Um, but again, it's used for humankind, not just for Panama. And I think if you remember a year or two ago, if you watched the news, there was a giant ship that got stuck there for a few days and, and stopped. Stopped uh, flow on the on the Panama Canal, which is which is a big deal because um, that can cost thousands of dollars in money because there's so much supplies and shipping that goes to the canal. So that is a brief kind of overview and history of the Panama Canal, like I said, which is considered a, a huge achievement for the Teddy Roosevelt presidency. Now, without con- not without controversy, because it took a revolution. <laughs> And Colombia losing Panama and Panama becoming their own country for that to occur. And maybe, you know, Panama would have eventually become their own country. You never know. But either way, that's the history of the Panama Canal, a, a pretty important and big achievement in humankind. So the second topic I want to talk about in this episode is the Brownsville affair, which is maybe the blackest mark on Teddy Roosevelt's, not just presidential career, but his career in general, kind of a, just, just a sad, uh, moment in American history. So, uh Brownsville affair refers to Brownsville, Texas, and there was a fort called Fort Brown on the edge of the town. Now Brownsville is, uh, is near the Texas-Mexico border, essentially at the bottom tip of Texas, and it was founded in 1846. Originally, it was called Fort Texas. It was named after Jacob Brown, who was killed during the siege of Fort Texas in the Mexican-American War. It was renamed by General Zachary Taylor, who was the future president. Now, there was another Jacob Brown that's famous for the War of 1812. This is a different Jacob Brown that this fort was named after. Just some more history about the the fort. The Confederates occupied it during the Civil War for a little bit, and it did actually just switch hands back and forth. So, but the Brownsville affair refers to an incident in 1906. So in July of 1906, a group of Buffalo soldiers, again, we talked about this last episode, African-American soldiers. um, Again, nicknamed Buffalo soldiers by Native Americans. Um, were sent to be stationed in Fort Brown. They had been transferred from Nebraska to be placed in all-white unit, and the black soldiers had to follow Jim Crow laws of racial segregation. Again, this is in Texas. This is the South and Deep South, almost again close to Mexico. Um, the white residents of Brownsville resented their. Presence. Local merchants actually refused to sell the soldiers food or items. And one soldier was allegedly or was beat up for allegedly brushing up against a woman. One soldier was actually thrown or, or pushed into the river and actually almost drowned. So these soldiers were not treated well just simply because they were black. Um, again, because of the segregation laws and, and racism that existed. Um, racism in uh, Texas there. So a couple weeks later, so they they were sent there on July 26th. On August 12th, about two weeks later, a white woman was attacked in town. And that, that is true. A white woman was attacked. However, the blame fell on the black soldiers. Just immediately, the townsfolk blamed them, despite the fact that no evidence supported this accusation. So Major Charles Penrose, who was in charge of the soldiers at the fort, declared a curfew for the next night for the soldiers to avoid um, trouble falling upon the soldiers. So he just kind of was preemptively like he understood that because of this attack, that nothing good could potentially happen to his soldiers. So it just so happened the next night, a bartender in town was killed. And a police officer was wound, w- wounded in a random shooting from unknown people in the town. Nobody saw what happened, but a bartender was shot and killed, and a police officer was wounded. So the residents naturally just immediately blamed the black soldiers um, for these crimes. Some residents claimed they saw soldiers creeping around the streets with a gun, and now the officers at Fort Brown, who were all white, so had white officers and then black troops, they all confirmed that the soldiers were in their barracks when the shooting occurred. So again, that, that curfew in one sense paid off because all the soldiers were in the fort when the shooting happened. And the officer also inspected all the weapons and found that none of his, the weapons discharged any ammunition. So pretty much lock solid there's witnesses that the soldiers didn't commit these crimes and again none of their guns were shot so there's no forensic evidence either but the residents of brownsville and the mayor still claim that it was the soldiers and they showed spent shells to prove that it came from the soldiers and this was dubious at best um Many claim that these uh, shells were planted to frame the soldiers. And the soldiers were actually pressured to name who fired the shots, but they all claimed they didn't have any idea. And the local county did not return any indictments on the soldiers, but the residents just continued to complain about the soldiers. And this got all the way up to Teddy Roosevelt and then He decided that um, all 167 soldiers were guilty of conspiracy of silence because they wouldn't give up the person who did it, even though there's no evidence that any, any soldiers actually committed the crimes. So he decided to dishonorably discharge all the soldiers, despite no evidence there. This was huge. Some had been in the army for over two decades and were close to retirement. And this meant all the soldiers lost their pensions and could not get federal civil service jobs in which was again extremely um terrible for these soldiers because it was tough for African Americans to get good paying jobs and kind of working in the army was one of the better options. So this meant that these men had to work pretty much low paying jobs for the rest of their career. The Major, Prenrose, was actually court-martialed, essentially for protecting the soldiers. Um, I don't want to say protecting, but like um, uh, he he was considered protecting the soldiers, but I mean, he was protecting the soldiers because they didn't do anything wrong, but he wasn't covering anything up. Now, in 1910, 14 of these soldiers that had been uh, discharged were allowed to re-enlist, but for a lot of these other soldiers, that I mean, their careers were over. Their ability to provide for their families were over unless they took really low-paying, menial jobs. Now, the Roosevelt administration withheld news of the discharge until after the 1906 elections, so it wouldn't hurt them in the election. you got to think about now, like, at this time, the Republican Party... Um, or or, excuse me, most African-Americans voted for the Republican Party. Because again, this is just 40 years after slavery, after the Civil War, the party of Lincoln. Um, African-Americans supported the Republican Party pretty strongly. It's it's flipped now, but... So Roosevelt withheld the the, the news so the Republicans would not lose the African-American vote for the midterms. And it worked. But in 1908, when William Taft won the presidency as a Republican. He won it, but black people voted against Taft more than any other presidential Republican candidate at the time. I mean, really, the, the out actions of Teddy Roosevelt and, um, led to outrage, not just from African American voters, but from white voters. So this did eventually hurt Republican voters um, with the African American community in 1908. But just... uh like I said, outraged the public. Because uh, again, he, he essentially fired 167 soldiers with no proof. Now fast forward to 1970, and there was a book that came out called The Brownsville Raid by John Weaver. And he investigated, uh, oh, he, he, he wrote a book about the affair, the Brownsville affair. And Congress reinvestigated the matter. And in 1972, the Army determined the soldiers were innocent. And President Nixon actually pardoned them and changed their discharge from dishonorable to honorable. Of course, the problem is only two of them, the soldiers, were still living at the time. And the last soldier surviving in 1973 was given $25,000 tax-free. But what was especially disheartening about this is that some of the soldiers that were dismissed actually fought with Teddy Roosevelt in the Spanish-American War, just, you know, seven years earlier, but, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, um, that didn't matter to him. And really, I think one of the big black marks in, and again, in his career and in American society is this unfortunate event where, um, a number of soldiers were fired for no proof and lost their livelihood. It's essentially, again, come out that, they didn't commit these crimes, but there's nothing they can do about that right now. So so that is the, the Brownsville Raid, um, or the Brownsville Affair is what it's called as well. Um, and just uh, not, not a great moment. Simple as that. Okay, so the, the last topic I want to talk about is the Russo-Japanese War between Russia and Japan. And 1904 and 1905. And you might be thinking to yourself, why are we talking about a war um, that does not involve the U.S. And especially when the topic of this podcast is the Roosevelt's. Well, I picked this topic for a couple of reasons. First off, history is obviously a huge interest of mine. And probably especially wars in history is something that intrigues me. Uh, But second, uh, this war had a huge impact on FDR down the road, but also Teddy Roosevelt ended up playing a prominent role um, with how the war ended and the negotiations. And is actually, again, considered one of his bigger foreign policy achievements. And so this affects both Roosevelt's and Eleanor Roosevelt too. And it's also sets up what the U.S. is going to deal with going forward in World War I and World War II. And it's also a war I don't think a lot of people talk about here in the U.S. So um, it, it just is an interesting topic that I'm going to talk about. So just kind of uh, kind of bear with me here as I kind of talk about the war in, in, in Japan and Russia. But, but trust me, when we, when we get to the end, I'll tie it into what this has to do with Teddy Roosevelt, and what this has to do with FDR um, in the 20th century. So, um, this uh, Russo-Japanese War, Russia, Japan. So, let's talk about Japan. Um, In the mid-1800s, Japan was just a very isolated country, really far behind the Western powers militarily. I mean, very, um, not at all technologically advanced. And really, when you think about it, considered um, not even, even behind the times, is what you'd say about Japan. Now in 1852, under orders from President Millard Fillmore, Commodore Matthew Perry, who was a War of 1812 and Mexican-American War vet, was ordered to sail to Japan and force them to open their ports to trade. And really, the Japanese couldn't do anything about it. They didn't have the firepower to stop the U.S. or Western powers, and so Japan was forced to, was called gunboat diplomacy, to sign... Treaties with these other countries that were unequal for Japan, but um, were favored more in the favor of the U.S., etc. The treaties said they had to open ports to foreigners, levy no tariffs or taxes, and not try any any of these citizens in their courts. And so, what was important about this was that Japan realized they had to evolve and modernize, otherwise they would become subjugated by Western powers. So, because of this moment by the United States in the 1850s. And plus the other countries I did this as well. Japan became a very a country that really modernized extremely quickly. They became very militaristic and an imperialist country looking for their own colonies. And so they they decided to turn into their own power instead of being like I said earlier subjugated. And over the next half century from 1850 to 1900 their rapid modern modernization is considered one of the marvels of society over the last few hundred years. It's just really incredible how quickly they turned from just kind of a, again, a very non-technologically advanced country to one of the most technologically advanced countries. By the 1890s, they had defeated China in a war and they were able to um, annex Taiwan. Actually, by 1902, they had signed a military alliance with Britain. And by the early 1900s, they were a burgeoning military power again, which is a real striking advancement from the last 50 years. Now, as Japan modernized, one of the issues that came up was that Japan wanted to conquer Korea, as they felt they were an inferior people and deserved to be conquered. Does that kind of sound familiar? Um, I think it does with Europeans coming over to the U.S. and conquering the Native Americans. Now, a big reason for that, the war with China was that um, that the Japan won in the 1890s was that Japan um, wanted to have what they called the sphere of influence over Korea. They wanted to be in charge of Korea um, instead of instead of uh, China. And Japan, because of the one of the other benefits for Japan from the 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 war against China in the 1890s, was that they were awarded that influence over Korea. However, Russia itself had ambitions to have their influence in Korea and Manchuria, and they wanted to build up a presence in Asia as well. And this was just completely unacceptable to Japan because they they considered themselves the big Asian power there. And this resulted in tensions between the two countries. Diplomacy was unsuccessful between the two countries, which set the course towards war. Now, Tsar Nicholas of Russia, so the the Emperor of Russia, he was cousins with the German Emperor William II, and William Wilhelm, sorry, pushed Nicholas to go to war with Japan to quote save the white race. Um, some historians believe he was actually pushing Russia to war so that um, they could break away, they, they could break France from Russia and push Russia into a military alliance with Germany, kind of reimagining and changing the balance of power in Europe. And this would pay dividends down the road in another decade in the World War One. I. Um, now, and anyways, um, they hoped if this happened, that Germany and Russia could combine to form an alliance, and then maybe that would get Britain to jump into a war with Japan. And Nicholas Tsar Nicholas felt that he, if he had the support of Germany, he would kind of win the war. And so my whole point of talking about all those different alliances there was that there could have been a diplomatic resolution potentially to this war, but Nicholas was pushed by his cousin, and and also other people saying they had to save the white race um, into a war with Japan. Now on February 6, 1904, Japan severed relations with Russia and declared war two days later. And... um, and at the outset of the war, Japan had about 850,000 trained troops available. Russia had about a 100, 150 in the Far East. Um, so Japan, as this war was getting ready to start, Japan had way more people, way more soldiers out there in the Far East. But people still expected Russia to win this war because they were Russia. They were the the European country. And it had been a long time since an Asian country had even defeated a European country. So going into this war, people fully expected um, Japan to be beat and Russia to win. Okay, so from here I'm going to go into a little bit of an in-depth, kind of look at the course of the the Russo-Japanese War and talk about some of the major battles. And again, just kind of stick with me here as I go through this. One, I'm just going through this because it is a pretty interesting war um, and an impactful war, and and its results do have um, an impact on both Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. And I think to really maybe understand that impact, it's important to... um, Understand the course of the war and how it went. So, bear with me here as I go through the war because I also think it's pretty interesting and a pretty consequential war that happened in the early 20th century. So, the first uh, kind of major battle in the war was the Battle of Port Arthur, which happened on February 8th, 1904. And this is how the war did begin, and it began with a surprise night attack on Port Arthur, which is uh, a Russian port. That was in Manchuria, Manchuria. Excuse me. and this attack happened before the declaration of war was sent from Japan to Russia. So does that kind of sound a little bit familiar? Because that was the same thing that happened in Pearl Harbor about 40 years later. Um, now, the Japanese were not accurate at all. The only three of their torpedoes scored hits on ships, but two of them knocked out Russia's best battleships. And so the The Japanese came back the next day and were actually driven from the field and and suffered more casualties than the russians um, and so Russia could kind of claim a small victory but in reality the psychological advantage the Japanese gained from this attack was significant, just kind of like the Pearl Harbor attack forty years later just a psychological attack of of uh of being bombed and 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 uh by, in this case, Japan, it had a pretty big toll that it it played on the Russians who felt that they were going to be able to easily win a war with Japan. Um, This kind of led to the Battle of the Yellow Sea, which happened later in August, about six months later, and that was the first um, major battle um, with steel battleship fleets. And this is simply where the Russian fleet at Port Arthur tried to attempt a a breakout as the Japanese were trying to lay siege to Port Arthur. um, And they were eventually forced back to Port Arthur. And so they were not able to break out, which led to the subsequent siege of Port Arthur, which lasted from August 1904 to January 1905. And so about a five-month siege that um, the Japanese put on this port, which eventually allowed them to capture the port, uh, Port Arthur, and at the same time destroy the Russian Pacific Fleet. Now it's pretty interesting how, in my opinion, how uh, Russia surrendered. Now, um, five months into the siege, two Russian generals, you know, offered surrender to the Japanese, and they offered that without consulting any other senior officials, and when the Japanese ended up after the surrender, went in and investigated um, Russia and all their supplies that they had left. They found out that they had huge stores of food after the surrender, which implied that the, the port could actually have held out a few longer. So the Russian generals surrendered just a little bit early, um, and those Russian generals ended up being court-martialed. It was a very high cost for Japan, despite the fact that they were able to take Port Arthur. They had 58,000 Casualties, and they lost 16 ships, whereas Russia had 31,000 casualties plus another 24,000 that surrendered. So very high casualties here in this war. Kind of what we'd start to see later on in World War One. Now the Japanese General Nogi, uh, when he was giving a verbal report to the Emperor, he actually broke down and cried and wept, and he actually apologized that it cost Japan. 56,000 soldiers' um, deaths in order for them during the whole campaign of capturing Port Arthur. And he actually asked the Emperor that he be killed himself as atonement for those losses. The Emperor actually refused um, that, and actually, he took some blame himself for the orders, the Emperor that we're talking about here. And he told the G- General Nogi that he must remain alive for the rest of the war or at least as long as the emperor lived. The emperor ended up dying in 1912, and shortly thereafter that, Nogi and his wife actually did commit suicide. And the reason why I bring that up is is we start to see even back in 1904, and this wasn't the first time, but you can also see here in this war how that foreshadows just the, the commitment, some would call it fanaticalism, of the Japanese soldiers in their beliefs. Of war that there was this they had this in their own honor code that they had to follow and that led to again the high casualties in World War II and the many holdouts that were there. Now the victory put Japan in an extremely superior position going into into uh, 1905. One battle in 1904 I haven't talked about yet was the battle of Yalu River. And this, is the first, this actually happened in May of 1904, so we're kind of going back a couple months here. It was the first major land battle of the war and fought in what is now North Korea. Now, Russia's strategy when the war began was to perform stalling operations while reinforcements could be sent through the Trans-Siberian Railway. And if you remember, I talked about how Japan had a few hundred thousand more soldiers in Asia. So Russia's trying to stall to get more soldiers to come. It was estimated to take about six months for um, those reinforcements to come, um, and really, Russia's goal was to hold this river to prevent the Japanese from crossing into Manchuria. Manchuria, man, I can't say Manchuria today. Unfortunately for them, the Japanese were able to outmaneuver Russia and then defeat them uh, in this battle, and they Russia suffered twice as many casualties as Japan. And this land battle was actually the first battle in decades where an Asian power had defeated a European power. And this battle showed that this would again, not be an easy war for Russia. And that would also be a long war. Again, when this war started, people expected Russia to crush Japan. And here in 1904, with the victories at Port Arthur, the victories at Yellow the River, um, it was um, proven that it was going to be an extremely tough war for Russia. To win, and if they did, it'd be a long more. So, going into 1905, Japan had the upper hand, and that leads us to the Battle of Mukden, which was in February, March of 1905. And it was actually one of the largest land battles potentially in history up until that point. It was definitely one of the largest land battles before World War One. Uh, there's 270,000 Japanese troops, 290,000 Russian troops. The Japanese are actually fire over 20 million rifle machine gun rounds and over 280,000 artillery shells just over this 10-day battle. Um, this battle was fought near Mukden, um, and this is actually the last land battle of the war. This is where the entire Japanese army strength was concentrated. Now, both armies at this time were under strain. Now, the Japanese had used up their reserves while Russian forces were being used to actually stop the Russian Revolution of 1905, which I'll get into in a little bit, but there was some unrest at home. And so both armies were suffering a little bit, even Japan, despite the fact they'd been pretty much winning almost every battle. So in this battle, the Japanese attacked the right and left flanks of the Russians, which they held until the Russians decided to start shifting troops from the right to the left flank, and this ended up causing, along with an aggressive Japanese attack, on um, the collapse of the Russian army and an encirclement. Russia had 90,000 casualties in this battle. Japan had 80,000. Russia almost lost, also lost most of their supplies and guns. Um, Russia was completely driven out of southern Manchuria. Um, in um, J- Japan pursued them, but their poor supply lines kept them from really effectively pursuing Russia. And this victory just completely destroyed Russian morale, even though that Japan had been winning throughout this war. This was just another large defeat um, and again shocked the European powers. Again, they really felt the Asian countries were inferior. But uh, they, the Japan proved in this battle that they were actually superior. There are actually numerous military advisors from foreign countries who observed this battle. And they're observing this battle to determine how the next war would be fought. And there are many tactics that were used in this war were used in World War I. And many of these military advisors that watched this battle and watched this war together ended up fighting on different sides in World War I. And the last battle I want to talk about is the Battle of Tsushima which happened in May uh, 27th and 28th of 1905. And it was the last land battle of the war, not the land battle, the last battle of the war. And at this point in May, simply what happened was the Japanese destroyed the Russian fleet. Russia lost eight battleships and 5,000 soldiers in this naval battle. Japanese just lost 116 men. And, And at this point in time, um, there had been 17 battles in this war, 13 were Japanese victories, four were considered indecisive and inconclusive, maybe a tie, and zero Russian victories. So, went about as poorly as, as possible as it possibly could for uh, Russia. Now, after this battle, um, Russia finally agreed to peace talks and... President Teddy Roosevelt actually offered to mediate these talks and they end up meeting in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They met in New Hampshire instead of Washington because of the better climate. Now, both countries had, uh, you know, certainly while Japan had the clear victory, as I said, they were still under tremendous strain for their army. And with supplies and men, so even though they had had victory after victory after victory, they still wanted peace talks to happen. Because there's certainly the opportunity, the chance of this war drug on, it could have a negative impact on their economy at home. Russia obviously wanted this to get done because they were getting their butts kicked. Um, the terms of these treaties were uh, somewhat simple. Um Russia recognized Japan's claims to Korea. Remember I talked about earlier, how um, Japan really wanted to conquer Korea once it became military power. Japan actually annexed Korea in 1910. Japan also got claims of Southern Manchuria and um, as well. Russia ceded its lease of Port Arthur over to Japan, so a lot of territorial claims there for Japan. But at the flip side, Russia was not required to pay Japan's war cost, which was a a common um, term of uh, a treaty is that the loser pays the the winning side's war cost. But that was kind of the the compromise that President Teddy Roosevelt was able to uh, get the two countries to agree to, and 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 Teddy Roosevelt wanted really immersed himself into this treaty because as the documentary talked about, he really saw the world as having spheres of influence. And, you know, he felt that Japan should have influence over Asia and, and not Russia. He didn't necessarily want Russia to be, um, you know, he but it, let me, let me kind of start over here. He felt that Japan should have influence over Asia. But he also didn't want them to get too powerful. Kind of like what we'd see later on. And and he also didn't necessarily want, obviously, Russia to collapse, per se. And so he was just always trying to keep everything in balance. And so he, on one hand, he was kind of happy that Japan was able to win the war. So that Russia just couldn't be all powerful. But at the same time, he didn't want Russia to be completely destroyed And because of the adverse effects that could happen there. So that's why he was very much into negotiating this treaty, the Treaty of Portsmouth, as it was called. Now, the reaction to this treaty, um, Russia abandoned their expansionist policies in East Asia. Um, The Japanese people didn't approve the treaty, though, because, again, they had pretty pretty much won almost every battle in this war. They actually wanted more territory. They were not happy that Russia... Was not going to pay the Japanese war costs, and it was so bad that actually riots broke out protesting the treaty. Um, it actually caused the prime minister to resign. But again, the, the the public at home didn't understand how overextended the military was. So it was a great it was a great victory for Japan, um, the first actually victory of a Asian power over a European power in hundreds of years. But the the Japanese people weren't happy with, I guess, the spoils of victory themselves. So this brings us to, again, the significance of this war and why I wanted to talk about it. So the big surprise of this war was not just that it was a Japanese victory, but it it was a decisive victory. Japan was not expected to win this war, but not only did they win it, they just flat out destroyed Russia. And this had huge significance going forward. So, because of this war, Japan grew to dominate China, dominate Asia, and this really led to World War II. They they continued to become very militaristic, very expansionist, wanting their own colonial holdings, and became very confident in their uh, military abilities, which um, led to. The expansion of their empire in Asia, and then eventually to war, where they ended up again attacking the U.S. in Pearl Harbor, and really being a main part of World War II, which is what President FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, had to deal with. You kind of really wonder, had they lost this war, would they have grown to be the power they ended up being? I would argue maybe not, okay? Russia, um, this actually set out the Russian Revolution of 1905, which I talked about earlier. The unrest and the unpopularity of the war, especially as Russia started getting their butts kicked, um, set out this revolution. I think a lot of people don't realize there were two Russian revolutions. You know, I think a lot of people think about the Russian Revolution of 1917 during World War I, which did cause the Bolsheviks to take over and the USSR and then communism to dominate there. But there was a revolution in 1905 because partly because of this war, which the Tsar was able to survive. Um, but he was not able to survive the eventual Russian Revolution of 1917. The monarchy was overthrown, and the Tsar Nicholas is actually executed. So you really kind of wonder then, what if Russia won this war? Again, we talked about the effects of Japan, but if Russia wins this war, maybe they don't become communists 12, 15, 20 years down the road. Maybe they still do, but you never know and maybe with a, a victory in a war they become a little bit more powerful and that changes things in World War 1 which again definitely changes things in World War 2 maybe the FDR isn't fighting or having to deal with a communist Russia as an ally in World War 2 and then certainly eventually the cold war which um the US and the world had to deal with and so that that's what's significant about this it really forged the paths of these two countries Japan and Russia which affected the world. It affected Teddy and it affected Franklin as well. Um, So again, in looking at Teddy Roosevelt, he ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize for this, which was maybe his biggest foreign policy win. Um, So this war profoundly was, was affected by, or affected Teddy Roosevelt and FDR. I kind of already talked about that in terms of this peace prize in terms of Teddy having an instrumental part in ending it, but also the effects of this war would stretch to his cousin, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and when he became president, you know, 30 years later. Now, there was an interesting quote that the um, documentary mentioned, and it, and it talked about how Teddy would predicted that the U.S. would eventually have a war with Japan, and that would be one of the most awful conflicts in human history, essentially predicting World War II, I looked into that, and I couldn't find proof that he actually said that. that. That quote is out there attributed to him, but I couldn't find actual proof that he actually said that. So you kind of hope it's true because, man, he was spot on with that prediction, but we don't really know if that's true. So th- so that will do it for this episode of Doc Tell Me More, uh, where we looked at episode two of the Roosevelt's, where we looked at um, the Panama Canal and... The the hand Teddy Roosevelt had in that one of the bigger achievements of his presidency. We looked at the Brownsville affair, which is one of the biggest black marks on his presidency and his life, and then um, we talked about the Russo-Japanese War, which is a war that really set the tone for a lot of things that happened in the 1900s. But again, Teddy Roosevelt having a huge foreign policy win there with winning the Nobel Peace Prize and, and getting the Treaty of, of Portsmouth um, agreed to. But again, also the effects it would have later on for Franklin when he became president later. So that's Doc Tell Me More, episode 47. Um, my hope is, again, I think you've noticed the last couple episodes It's been about every three weeks. i hope in that three to four week range. Been a little bit busy right now. I got about another month left, left of school um, to teach here before summer break. And my, I'm a little bit busier as well if my kids are in Little League. So if my next episode is a little bit longer, that's probably why. But I still have to hit around three weeks. And next we'll look at uh, episode three of the Roosevelt's, Ken Burns the Roosevelts. I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more of Franklin Roosevelt is my guest and Eleanor Roosevelt and probably winding down a little bit of Teddy Roosevelt. Again, though, I appreciate you for listening. Uh, you can get and find me at Mastodon at doc at mastodon world and until next time we'll talk to you later.